0: Welcome to Built To Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 52, and we're going to talk about that most contentious of van life topics, insulation. We're also going to talk about how you can tap into your fuse block for power And the best way to do that, we'll have a tale from the road from a contributor, which I desperately appreciate, a product review of a USB monitor, and a place to visit that is escaping New York. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me once again. Here we are with episode 52, and this is the very last episode that I will be recording in College of Curiosity Studios. That is the basement of my house, because as you are listening to this, I am in the process of moving to the Sausage Murder Factory. That's a long story. At any rate, I have been putting off talking about insulation because it is so contentious and I have actually found out a little bit about why it's so contentious and I'll address that here. But before we get into the different kinds of insulations and their pros and cons, we have to take a step back and do what Einstein suggested, which is ask the simple questions. And one of those is... What is insulation? The answer is not as simple as you might think. You might think, oh, insulation is this stuff that keeps you warm or keeps you cool. And no, it. well, I mean, yes. But the concept is better explained like this. If you have a container and it is a different temperature from the environment around it, eventually... It's going to equalize. It's going to become the same temperature as the world around it. That's true for homes. It's true for people. It's true for vehicles. What insulation does is it slows that process. That's it. That's all insulation does. Insulation in a cooler slows the process of heat getting into the cooler and melting the ice. Insulation in a van slows the process of heat from the outside getting into the van or heat from the inside of the van getting out to the cold winter air. Now, if you think of insulation that way, which is the correct way, a lot of stuff becomes clear, and yet, not so clear. Because you see, the environment's temperature doesn't stay the same all the time, and that complicates things. Let me explain. There are a lot of people who recommend that if you live in a hot climate, or you're going to be using your van in a hot climate mostly, that you don't... Add insulation, and you might think, "Well, that's crazy. It's hot. I have to keep the heat out of my van." Well, the argument is, is that that is a losing battle, because the problem of air conditioning is so hard. You actually are not going to be able to significantly reduce the amount of heat coming into your van. I mean, sure, you can do some basic things like have a white van, and you can put reflectics on the windows, which we will talk about some more. But basically, you're going to lose. And if you insulate heavily, it may take you longer to lose, but when you lose, you're going to stay lost for a longer time. Because if you think about it, in the evening, when it starts to cool off, your van's insulation is going to keep the heat in the van longer. It's going to be harder to cool your van off. And I have actually experienced this. My, my van has a good amount of insulation. And when I go out in the summer, I notice that as the temperature drops off, My van's temperature stays at least 10 degrees warmer than it is outside, and that's not just from my body heat. I've measured it without me being in the van. It does take a while for that heat to escape from the van, so in a hot environment, having no insulation may be the way to go because you'll be able to get rid of that heat very quickly. The metal skin of your van wants to radiate that heat off. So that's something to consider. Now, in cold climates, insulation is important not to keep the heat in the van, but to keep condensation from forming on the inside of your van. The real problem is that you are going to be in the van in hot, moist air, especially if you're burning propane or butane. Just your breathing releases liters of water a day into the air. That moist air will hit anything cold and instantly turn into water, and drip down the sides of your van, and potentially freeze. Insulation will prevent that. But, insulation in a van may not be necessary if you have a good heating system, because it's actually very easy to overwhelm that change in temperature with heat. So that's where we're starting. Insulation is good, but it's also a problem and it's important to know what you're trying to accomplish and what, how you're going to be using your van. You would insulate a van differently if it's going to be always in the sun or always in the cold. And your heating system will impact how you insulate the van. If you're going to have a minimal heating system, you're going to want more insulation for using it in the winter. But if you've got a big 8 kilowatt diesel heater in there, Uh, you're going to overwhelm the cold with that heater. You're probably going to be opening a window to let some heat out. Insulation's a little bit less important in that circumstance. That's the conceptual stuff. So let's talk about some pros and cons of some common insulations that you can run into. First, let's get rid of fiberglass right away. Fiberglass is what's most often used in homes. It's in your attic. It's that itchy stuff, often pink. The Pink Panther used to advertise it. It's fairly cheap to buy. It's fairly easy to install, except it it releases particles that make you very itchy. But it's terrible for vans. And the reason is that it sucks up moisture and doesn't let it go. It is not suitable for van life. Not only that, it can release little particles even while it's in the walls. Just skip it. Fiberglass? No good. Gone. Okay, that was an easy one. That's basically all con. All right, I'll I'll give it a couple of pros. And in fact, they do use it in RVs in some cases. Pros of fiberglass are that it's cheap and it has a pretty good R value. If you're listening to my show and you actually care about my advice, don't use fiberglass. But don't get fiberglass mixed up with rock wool. Rock wool, also called mineral wool, also called slag wool. Looks like fiberglass, but it's different. It's not made out of glass. It's actually made out of minerals that are superheated and melted and then made into strings. Similar process to fiberglass, but the resulting product is much better. It doesn't break the same way fiberglass does, and it releases far fewer particles. Yeah, you still might get itchy installing it. But the big thing is, is that it doesn't have the same problem with water that fiberglass does. It can get wet, but it'll simply dry out. It doesn't harbor mold or anything like that. I use rock wool in my van in places where I couldn't put other things. It's nice because you can cut it to exactly the shape you want and put it in. And I think it's fine. It has a very good R value, and it also has a really good sound deadening value. So rock wool is something to consider. All right, let's move on to the foam boards, of which we'll talk about three. First is polyisocyanurate, and I bet there's a better way to pronounce that. This is that stuff that's usually foil-backed that you see in Home Depot. It comes in big sheets. It is the most energy efficient of all the foams that you can get. It has the highest R value. You read the stats on this stuff, and you're like, well, I'll just use this for everything. But not so fast. It's not very expensive. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's very stiff. And you're not going to be able to use this to mold around anything in your van. So it's good for floors. It's good for ceilings. And maybe some big wall panels, depending. But that's about it. And uh, if you do choose to install this, as I have, I have some in my ceiling. Put the foil part inside. Because anytime foil touches metal it's lost all of its value it's worthless and that is going to come into play when we talk about reflective collater and there's two other kinds that are made out of polystyrene polystyrene i think is number 6 on the recyclable chart it's basically the material that a foam coffee cup is made out of it comes in two different kinds there's xps and eps the ps stands for polystyrene and the x stands for extruded and the e stands for expanded well what's the difference there is a little bit of a difference. XPS is much more like polyiso. It's these big sheets that are kind of firm. But XPS is very moisture resistant, even more moisture resistant than polyiso. So it's actually pretty good. It doesn't have quite the same R value though, so it's a little bit less insulative than the polyiso. It would be a good choice for a floor, for example. But the EPS, which is usually white, has a couple of advantages. It's okay with moisture, it's okay with energy efficiency, but it's also more flexible. If you had a roof that was slightly curved, EPS would be able to bend itself to meet that curve without cracking, unlike the other ones. So all three of those have benefits and disadvantages. They're well worth looking into for big places where you can put a big sheet up and you don't have to worry about going around corners and things like that. Okay, the next one, and you're probably hearing a lot about this right now, is Havelock Wool. It's just what it sounds like. It's sheep's wool. And Havelock is a brand name. I had to actually look up what a Havelock was. If you're curious, a Havelock is kind of that piece of cloth that hangs behind a hat to keep your neck from getting sunburned, kind of like the French Foreign Legion. Anyway, Havelock Wool is being heavily promoted, and a lot of the people who are afraid of chemicals love this stuff because, hey, it's all natural. Well so is rock wool all natural doesn't really mean a lot alligators are natural cancer is natural just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good and i am a little annoyed with the havelock wool company for their marketing which seems to play into people's fears of chemicals and here's their dirty little secret they spray the wool with chemicals Now, the chemical they're spraying it with is boric acid, which comes from borax. This is not a harmful chemical by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I don't think you want to eat pounds of it. It is from a natural source, but they don't really talk about that because it's an added chemical, which is what they're saying is bad. All I'm saying is everything's made out of chemicals. Some are good, some are bad. Just know what you're getting into. Havelock wool is a good insulator. It doesn't have the same R value as other things, but it also isn't going to make you as itchy as, say, rock wool. So that's good. It is a little bit difficult to install. It comes in these big bags, and it's just kind of loose wool bats, and you can't use adhesives with it. You can't just, like, spray Gorilla Glue or whatever on there and stick it to the wall. You have to find other ways to hold it up. And it's a natural material made out of keratin, which is what hair and fingernails are made out of. And there are a lot of things that like to eat that. So there are chances that you could have a pest infestation with wool. That's why they spray it with the boric acid, because another name for boric acid is ant poison. So I think it's a fine material. I think it's overhyped. And it's super expensive, The prices they're getting for Havelock Wool are really crazy. So if you're looking for a super natural, quotes, van, uh, Havelock Wool can be fine and you'll find lots of glowing reviews of it. I have never used it, so take that for what it's worth. I will just state that I'm annoyed with their marketing. Another choice that people who are interested in natural things will go towards is Denim. When blue jeans are made, there's a lot of waste material, and it's, you know, it's just denim, but it's not in the shape of pants, and that waste material is turned into insulation. Well... Denim is not good insulation for vans. It doesn't have very good R-value and while its price is good, if you've ever researched what clothing to wear hiking, you will see that jeans, blue jeans are often not recommended. It's because when they get wet, they lose all their insulative properties. Well, denim insulation in your van is going to have that same problem. In fact, it will absorb moisture and grow mold and it's just not a great choice for vans. So denim is almost all cons and very few pros. I guess the pros would be that it's recycled and it's not terribly expensive, but I wouldn't use it in my van. Another option is spray foam. Now there's actually a whole lot to talk about spray foam. I did use a bit of spray foam in my van in the ribs. I used closed cell spray foam. That's the stuff to use because the other stuff can expand so much that it'll actually dent your van. Spray foam is the Best insulation in terms of R-value. Properly applied spray foam in the back of your van will turn it basically into a refrigerator truck. But the cons are pretty steep. To do it properly, you really need to have it professionally installed. Because it is messy, and if you spray it in the wrong places, bad things will happen. Such as your doors will stop working, your slam vents will stop working, it'll gum up the works of anything mechanical. Also, it's kind of permanent. Once you do spray foam, it's there forever. If you need to put something else on a wall or run wires or plumbing or something like that, that spray foam is going to get in the way. And a lot of auto body shops will not work on your van if the walls are covered with spray foam. Of all the things we're talking about, spray foam is going to give you the best insulative properties, but there's more going on than just that. Another popular option is Thinsulate, and you may have encountered Thinsulate because it's popular to use in gloves and coats, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a thin insulation. That is, it has a high R value for its thickness. I will probably use Thinsulate in my next van, and the reason is that it is so easy to work with. It basically comes in rolls that are these puffy pieces of fabric, and you can glue them to your walls, and that's it. You can cut around shapes very easily, it doesn't have fibers that are going to get anywhere, and it has pretty good properties for sound insulation and heat insulation. Thinsulate is often compared with Havelock wool, and in my opinion, it wins when you consider all the factors. So, Thinsulate you can get on Amazon or whatever. It's uh, not so commonly found at Home Depot or the big box stores. But I'm thinking my next van is going to be mostly thinsulate. Now, if you do a lot of research on this, you might encounter something called recycled plastic insulation. This seems to be something that's only in Europe and Australia, but not in the U.S. I have never seen it here. It sounds like it has some good properties. A lot of people are using it, but... I've just never seen it in the U.S., so if you know a place to get it in the U.S., let me know and I can do a separate review of that. And last, the most contentious of all, Reflectix. Reflectix is bubble wrap with a thin layer of aluminum on each side that's embedded to plastic. It's crinkly, it's kind of space-age looking, and if you read the package, it looks like it's the best thing ever. Huge R-values, and very flexible, and it'll fit everywhere, and it requires you to understand a little bit about heat works. Reflectix is an excellent insulator against radiant heat. That is, if you were to go outside and put a piece of Reflectix between you and the sun, it would do a great job of blocking the sun. But conductive heat, that is heat where two objects touch each other and transfer heat, Reflectix is terrible at that. It's in fact nearly non-existent. So here's what you do with Reflectix. You put it on your windows. It is great at windows. And you can cover it with fabric, but as soon as it touches metal, it's about the same as putting bubble wrap up. Now that said, this is where I'm going to get in trouble. Reflectix will help prevent condensation doesn't do it as well as other things but if you cover the entire inside of your van with reflectix which a lot of people have done it will reduce condensation because it will keep that inner surface just warm enough that it won't get cold enough to condense water I, I feel dirty saying that but it is true I do have some reflectix in my van only because I had some laying around That's about as deep as I want to go into insulation this time. Feel free to flame me all you'd like. Let me know what you disagree with. Let me know what you agree with. Let me know your questions. You can get a hold of me at jeff at built2go.com. That's two Ts, not three, not one. Okay, tech talk. Let's say you want to add something electrical to your van that runs off of 12 volts. And you want it to run off of the engine battery, so this could be a CB radio, or some extra lights, or another 12-volt socket, anything like that. Where do you get the power from? Well, the best place is from the fuse block. All vehicles have at least one fuse block, and most have more than one. But nearly always, there is one inside the vehicle. In most vehicles, it's going to be by your left leg, at least on left-hand drive vehicles. It'll be by your left leg under the dashboard. That's where you're gonna find it in most vehicles. Some older Dodge vans had it above the glove compartment. Some Mercedes vehicles have it only under the hood. I've even seen them under the back seats. It depends on your vehicle, but you will figure that out. Here's what you need to know about tapping off the fuse block. First, there are two different kinds of circuits in your fuse block. One is always hot. That means that it's always providing power. Those are a little bit risky, because if you turn your key off and take your keys away, it's still going to be providing power, and you could drain your battery depending on what it's hooked up to. The others work only when the key is on. Things like the radio are usually wired like that, although most radios actually have one of each, one to keep the settings, that's the permanent on one, and then one to turn it on, that is the key one. Now, if you look at your fuses, They all have two pieces of metal. The old-style glass fuses, you've got a piece of metal, some glass, and another piece of metal. The newer-style plastic fuses, you've got plugs of metal. Where those plug in, one side is hot and the other side isn't. And you should take a power meter or a test light to figure out which side this is. The idea behind a fuse is to break that connection between those two pieces of metal if it gets too hot. That's all it's doing. And the reason you want to go to the hot side is so that you're not adding a burden to that fuse. If you put, say, a CB radio on a little tiny 5 amp fuse on the wrong side... You could pop that fuse, and you don't want that. What you want to do is tap off of the hot side and add another fuse that is properly rated for your device. That's it, and they do sell little clips that will go in there to make this easy for you, and you can just put on a terminal. Obviously, I have not given you the complete picture in a podcast because a lot of this is visual, but that's the concept, and now you have enough information to go search out how to do this on your own. There are some caveats here. You don't wanna do this with high power things. Anything that's super high power, like a refrigerator or anything that heats up, you wanna go probably directly to the battery for those things, but for just electronic accessories, like Alexas or GPSs or things like that, this is a tried-and-true and and proper way to tap into your FuseBlock. I've found an app that makes it dead simple to buy and sell stocks, even if you don't know what you're doing. And that app is Robinhood. I've used it for years without a hitch. No contracts, no hidden fees, no gotchas. When you open your account, they give you a free stock. That's right, one share of a publicly traded company will be yours. It could be a big name like Apple or Google, but more likely it'll be a smaller stock like Zynga or Sirius. And they'll give me a stock too, which helps keep the show going. There's a link in the show notes, but the URL to give it a try is join.robinhood.com slash JeffW118. If you decide it's not for you, sell the stock, keep the money, and close your account. Easy peasy. I promise to only promote products that I use and trust, and Robin Hood is one. If you have a different experience, please let me know, and thanks for giving it a look. Tales from the Road This tale comes from J-Rock a Canadian with whom I share an interest in some YouTube channels. Uh, A shout-out to Kira and the Survival Pod. But here is J-Rock's story, and it's a good lesson for all of us. This adventure started August Long Weekend. But before we start, let me give you a little background to my story. I own a Ford E350 van that I've converted to a camper van. I recently did some work on replacing the U joints on the drive shaft. For being a very large 1 ton van, I put safety first, blocking the tires and using the emergency brake so I didn't become another statistic. After replacing the U joints at a buddy's house, I drove home without thinking too much about the emergency brake being an issue. About two weeks had gone by since I'd done the work, and I started to get a feeling that maybe I should check to see if the emergency brake had fully released. But I ignored it, and you know, we got the van packed up for the one hour drive to the campsite. Driving down the highway, I noticed that the van was struggling to keep up a speed of at least 100 kilometers an hour. Oh, you Canadians and your sensible units. That's when that gut feeling came back and said, hmm, there's a problem with the brakes. Well, yes, there was a big problem. I had to pull over and park the van. And I got out and felt the back driver's tire, and wow, she was hot. The passenger tire, not so much, actually not at all. I was able to jack the van up and get the driver's side tire off, but I couldn't even touch the bolts that held the tire on. The brake drum was even hotter. I poured water over the drum to cool it down because I needed to take it off to release the e-brake cable. Luckily, my wife was following me in our minivan with the kids, and we were only 30 minutes from home, so I sent her to get the tools. While waiting for her to return, I decided to try and pry the drum off with my tire bar. After fighting for 30 minutes with the drum that I couldn't touch, it finally popped off. I got the e-brake to disengage and was able to handle the drum to put it back on again. I drove her to the campsite and waited for my wife to arrive so we could get things set up for the night. I was in need of a hot shower and a cold drink there's a lesson to be learned. If you have an older vehicle and are not too sure about the e-brake sticking or just even working, test it before going on a long trip because it could end up being a big problem if you're unable to fix it. Also, listen to your gut feelings. They may be trying to tell you something. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoy your podcast. Well, thank you, J-Rock. I absolutely appreciate you telling us this cautionary tale, and emergency brakes are something that we don't pay enough attention to. In the Midwest where I live, it is completely flat, and people don't use their emergency brakes when they park. And what happens is the cables don't get lubricated properly because they're just sitting and collecting crud. And so when you do use the emergency brake, they tend to stick. And as you saw... That can cause serious problems. So a good safety tip here is whenever you're driving on long trips and you stop at the gas station... Go around and feel your wheel hubs carefully. Make sure they're not too hot. If you have a wheel hub that's super hot, like J-Rocks was, you know you've got a brake problem. And it's better that you find out about that at a gas station than on the road when you start having smoke coming out of the back of your rig. If you have a tale from the road that you'd like to share with everyone, please send it to me either as an audio file or as a text file. I'm happy to work with you, and we will get it on the air. Let's do a product review of something that's not specifically van related, but is actually van related. (laughs) I'll explain. One of the hard things for me when I'm in the van is working, you know, I, I have an office, I have two big 27 inch monitors that I'm using right now to make this podcast. And that's not practical for me to fit in my NV200. So yes, of course I have a laptop and I can do almost everything on the laptop, but as I'm getting older and my eyes are getting less useful. I find that working on that one little screen can be a problem, so I looked into options for second monitors. You might think it's an absolute luxury to have a second monitor in a van, and well, yeah, so? I get to have luxuries. So I bought one, and it's actually been great. It's an AOC 16 inch ultra slim USB monitor. There's a bunch of these, I'll have a link in the show notes. The one I got doesn't require any power. You simply plug it into the USB port, and boom, you've got a second monitor that you can use to mirror your existing monitor or to be its own separate monitor, which is how I use it. Honestly, the thing's great. It just works. Now, it just works. It has a little stand that you can use to prop up on a table, or it has mounts so you could actually permanently mount it. In my van, I just use the stand, and when I'm done with it, I put it away out of sight. Honestly, it is perfectly exactly what you want in van life. It doesn't draw that much power, and it's not the gigantic most best resolution in the world, but that's not what I'm after. I just want two screens so I can, say, see how the audio is recording and also read my notes. So I highly recommend this thing, and here's the kicker. It's only 85 bucks. It's actually fairly affordable. It's on Amazon right now for 85 bucks. Again, link in the show notes. Definitely something to consider if you need another monitor. This would also work with, if you just had a Mac mini or something like that. One note, installing the drivers for the Mac was difficult. There are a number of drivers that look like they're the right drivers, but aren't. So before you use this thing, make sure you find the correct instructions and install it at home because otherwise you could end up with a very unhappy computer. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to get in touch with me because I've gone through it. I understand it's much easier on the PC side. So that's the AOC 16-inch ultra-slim USB monitor, a great solution for people who need another monitor in their van. Okay, a place to visit. You know the Route 66 song, right? It goes through St. Louis, down through Missouri, Oklahoma City, etc., etc., etc. Well, there's a couple of things missing from the song. The first is that the state of Kansas isn't mentioned at all, and Route 66 does go through Kansas for a little bit. The other is that it doesn't emphasize how much of Route 66 is actually in Illinois. And some of it's fascinating. The first corn dog was on Route 66 in Illinois. There's all kinds of muffler men you can visit. And some of the Route 66 that's in Illinois is still the original brick road, if you can imagine that. But that's not what I want to talk about if you have ever seen the movie escape from new york there is a critical scene near the end of the movie that involves a bridge and it's supposed to be the brooklyn bridge but it's actually the chain of rocks bridge that is at the end of route 66 where route 66 enters missouri now this bridge isn't used anymore but it was used to film escape from new york and it's a very strange place this bridge crosses the river obviously but it doesn't go straight It has a dog leg in the middle. And the reason is that there are two water cribs that are near the bridge. And after they decided to put the bridge there, they realized that ships were going to have a hard time navigating around the bridge and might hit the water cribs. So they had to put this jog in the bridge, which means that as you're crossing the bridge, you're going to have to take a right turn to get across the river. The cribs are fascinating. They look like castles sticking up out of the river. And there's a very tragic and creepy murder that happened on the bridge that you can read about as you walk across. It is a walking only bridge. It's a good mile across. So this is a little bit of a hike, but I recommend to check this out. You park on the Illinois side and then walk to Missouri. It's a fascinating couple of hours. You get to see some amazing views, all kinds of opportunities to take pictures and including wildlife photos, because there's a lot of bald eagles around there. So that is the chain of rocks bridge crossing between Illinois and Missouri. So I've got a resource recommendation for you, and I've, I will admit I used that resource today to help with the installation part of this, and that is faroutride.com. Faroutride.com is a website by a couple who are doing van life, and I've been doing it for years, and they have basically laid out everything you could want to know on a website. I mean, you can stop listening to this podcast forever and just go to their website and see everything you'd want to see. I, I wish you wouldn't, but you could, you could. Um, at, at any rate, it is a great resource. If you want to see charts, comparing things, get real world information on products that are used in van life and hear a few stories from them. So if you're looking for a good, reliable source for van life information on the web, definitely give faroutride.com a look. Thanks for listening to this episode 52. I truly appreciate you being here. Music, as always, was by Simon Wagg, and I just got a piece of email that I can't wait to share with you next week on helping women overcome some of the problems that men don't have in vans. So stay tuned for that. Until next time, remember, not all those who wander are lost, but some of them sure as hell are.